everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the Horrid Halls of Academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. Good day, Andrea. Oh, good day, my Sheila. <laughs> we are here with a very special episode. I think so. It's a very special episode, not just because of the film we're going to talk about, which is Peter Weir's uh, 1975 film Picnic at Hanging Rock, one of the great Australian films of all time, but... The way it came to us. Uh So I'm sure you know, dear listener, that uh, just over a year ago, we launched our Patreon, which has been doing really well and has been so fun to do. And we, just for our kind of first year, had a tier that we called the Dean tier. And uh, that was basically someone could pay decent chunk of money and they would get to program an episode. Yeah. And it sat there for a little bit and we didn't really think anyone would take it. And then the incredible Kay from Salem Horror Fest took us up on that purchased the Dean tier, and then passed it on to our friends at the Gaylords of Darkness podcast. Gifted it. I love that. Just passing it on. Just, you know, fuck capitalism. It's all about sharing. And so if you guys don't know, the Gaylords of Darkness is an incredible horror podcast hosted by Stacey Ponder and Anthony Hudson, and they are so fucking great. And if you're not listening to them, you absolutely should be. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, basically, since we've all kind of gone into this weird COVID maze of life, their weekly episodes are just a highlight of my week. So um, they sent us two films to pick from. One of them was Picnic at Hanging Rock. The other one was Personal Shopper, uh, another great film great that picks, yeah. I think we'll probably do someday. But we thought Picnic at Hanging Rock sounded so intriguing, and it was kind of an interesting challenge for us because neither one of us had seen it before. That's right. And the more research I did on this, I was like, how did I miss this? Mm-hmm. This is huge. This is a fundamental, very, very important film to Australian literature, to Australian film, and just I feel like I feel like I've opened up all these references that have gone way over my head. Yeah, and it's such an intriguing film. And what's even cooler about all this is I like to consider Stacy Ponder a dear friend of mine. Whoa, I know. And if you don't know who Stacy Ponder is, what have you been doing? Yeah. Um, she's the uh, she's the Final Girl blog. Obviously, Gaylords of Darkness. She's contributed to so many different outlets. She's just such an incredible voice in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we picked it. She very kindly sent me the Blu-ray of it that she had. Beautiful Criterion Blu-ray. Beautiful Criterion Blu-ray, which was gifted to her by one Mr. David Kajanik. Who? The screenwriter of Suspiria 2018. Big fan. Huge fan of that. So, you know... Are we not all some virginal schoolgirls just disappearing into some kind of unknown ether? We are tonight, and I apologize in advance. I keep saying hanging at Picnic Rock. (laughs) I don't know if that's just the horror fan in me. It's just like, oh, yeah, there was a hanging. No, there was a picnic. It's the rock that hangs. So apologies in advance if uh, if that falls out of my mouth tonight. So to kind of set the scene, I hadn't seen it before, as as I just mentioned, neither had Andrea. And Stacey very kindly sent me this package, and she wrote this really lovely note. And with her blessing, I would like to read to you all what she wrote, because she's an incredible writer, and I think it's just some lovely notes to kick off the episode. Picnic at Hanging Rock. I think you will like it. Maybe. But as I said, sometimes you surprise me, and I can't predict your do-likes and your do-not-likes. 
Hopefully you will give it a try. It's one of my favorites. We liked it. But I admit I was not at all enamored after my first viewing. I was expecting a quote-unquote horror movie, preferably a quote scary one, because that was pretty much my only arbiter of quality in those days. <laughs> I wasn't very good at meeting films on their own terms, not horror films anyway, and accepting them for what they were versus what I wanted them to be. Sure, sometimes I still just want to be scared, and sometimes if a film is too far off my expectations, my reaction might be decidedly meh. But overall, I think I'm a better, more seasoned, I don't know, viewer, and it's nice because I find I get so much more out of the genre. But Picnic, I love it so much. It is full of questions and mysteries and layers of meaning. But unlike, I don't know, Suspiria 2018, I have little interest in unraveling the threads. I am content to just let this film be and to simply experience it. It, too, is a comfort in these uncertain times. Maybe you'll see why I say that after you watch it. It really resonates with my headspace right now. It is also very languorous and gauzy and dreamy, so be prepared for that kind of mood when you dive in. Perfect. I think that sets the stage beautifully. I, I share a lot of her feelings. In fact, going into researching for this episode, I was like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna solve the mystery. I'm not gonna try. I wouldn't want to, even if I thought I could. You can't. And that is part of the point. And that is part of the beauty of it. So, uh, let that be a disclaimer to you, dear listener. We're gonna talk about it. There's a lot, a lot to talk about. There's a lot that has been talked about. It was also a little daunting to talk about this film that has been studied and analyzed and written about ad nauseum since it came out, since the novel came out in 1967. We're going to talk about the film, we're going to talk about the novel, and we're going to talk about its legacy and beyond. And I will say, if you are interested in this film, if you get into it and you want to hear more, Gaylords of Darkness do have their own episode on this film. I think they were doing like a month that they were calling Gaysterpiece Theater. Um, and I actually skipped a lot of those episodes because a lot of those films I hadn't seen yeah. and I really like to watch them in advance. So this was one of them. So as soon as we finish recording and I move on with my life, I'm going to listen to that episode and we will link that episode in the show notes so you can see what Stacey and Anthony have to say about it because I'm sure it'll be hilarious and great and thoughtful and gay as fuck. Yeah, I can't wait. So without further ado, I mean, the usual disclaimer, this is a spoilery spoiler town. And if you want to watch this film, the Criterion version is available for free on YouTube. Is it? Just type in Picnic at Hanging Rock. It pops right up. Oh God, do that immediately. So, Stop this episode. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And then come back. Because here we go. Picnic at Hanging Rock. What we see and what we seem are but a dream. A dream within a dream. learn to love someone else apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely dangerous, and you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. 
Valentine's Day in the year 1900, and the young women of Appleyard College are embarking on a field trip, a picnic at the local tourist attraction called Hanging Rock. Upon arrival, some of the girls decide to explore the site with permission from their teacher, Mademoiselle de Poirier. Four of them go up, Miranda, Irma, Marion, and Edith, but only Edith returns screaming and hysterical. Later that night, the group returns to Appleyard, and a tearful mademoiselle tells Mrs. Appleyard that they had to leave the three missing girls behind, as well as their math teacher, Miss McCraw. The girls are devastated, especially the orphan Sarah, who had a very close bond with Miranda and a very antagonistic relationship with the school's headmistress. An investigation discovers that Michael, the nephew of a rich old couple, had witnessed the girls crossing the stream with his valet, Albert. Michael becomes obsessed with finding and rescuing the girls, and so he returns to Hanging Rock to look for them and winds up finding an unconscious Irma, but also needs rescue himself. The mystery deepens as neither Irma nor Michael can remember anything of their ordeals. In the days that follow, the search goes cold and Appleyard College falls completely to shit. It becomes clear that Mrs. Appleyard cares less for the missing girls than her school's reputation, which is crumbling as staff resigns. Sarah, who has been wasting away since Miranda's disappearance, is found dead in the school greenhouse, having apparently left from the rooftop. Sensing that her school will never recover from these scandals, Mrs. Appleyard's body is found at the base of Hanging Rock, and a voiceover states that the mystery of the missing schoolgirls was never solved. That's my three-paragraph version. This mystery twists and turns and winds, and there are so many loose ends, and... A lot of them are explored in the book that we're going to talk about shortly, and we're going to talk about all of it. But it's a mystery and a hell of a one. Yeah, and it was definitely a film. It's a very, what I would say, a well-made film. It's Uh beautifully shot, very well acted. It's well written. It checks every box in terms of filmmaking. The cinematography, it's a beautiful painting. You could stop that film at any point. And you would be able to put that still in a museum. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. And I finished it and I was like, yeah, I like this movie. This was really interesting. And then it's lingering questions, the the threads of things that don't kind of come to anything but still have purpose. It, It just, it stayed with me in such an intense way. And I was actually messaging back and forth with Stacey and, and just saying like, it's reminiscent of so many things that I've encountered through media and culture and content, mm-hmm. but it still feels very singular. A few of the pieces I picked up on in my first viewing from my initial notes yeah. was the novel that got turned into a movie, The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. I've never seen that movie. The, the movie's okay. It was Sofia Coppola's first movie. Uh, yeah. I love the book. Okay. I love the book. And it's about these uh, boys in a suburban kind of area uh, who become obsessed with these very tragic sisters and they don't really know them, but they're fascinated by them and they keep peering in on them. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, incidentally enough, uh, Suspiria 2018, this notion of, you know, women together and the kind of conflicts that arise and the politics and uh, the friendships and the closeness and all of those things felt so, um, so parallel. Mm-hmm. to Suspiria 2018, that those were the two that I kind of pulled from. And I think both of those pieces have uh, some shared DNA. But Picnic at Hanging Rock very much feels like its own thing. Yes, uh, I'm inclined to agree. I also in- enjoyed 
watching it. I was like, this is really beautiful. I wonder if and when the horror element will ramp up. To me, I felt very haunted and shocked by the death of Sarah. That was uh, <sighs> that was kind of a, a strangly choky feeling that I had. And I just felt haunted by the entire film afterward. I found the whole storyline to be extremely unsettling. I generally find narratives about disappearances pretty mm-hmm. unsettling. Uh, Spurlus uh, is yes. one of my favorite psychological horror movies of all time. It really fucks me up. And I, I feel some of that narrative DNA here in that, you know, there's the mystery of the disappearance and then there's the disappearance itself and it will haunt you and haunt you and drive you crazy to the point that like that is the horror, is the aftermath that just lingers and rots and decays and eats away at you. And I think especially when you see the toll the disappearance, which happens in the first half hour of the film, the the toll it takes on various characters mm-hmm. and you see them wear away. I think another fascinating part of this film is the framing device, the text at the beginning that's, you know, like on the 14th of February, 1900, these girls went. As if went. it's recorded history. And the book has a kind of similar note from Joan Lindsay, its author, you know, and she kind of plays with, you know, these events are fiction, but it also doesn't matter because the people have long since died. Right. And it's, uh, other people have mentioned this. Uh, I believe it was a review I was reading in the Guardian newspaper that um, proposed the similarity between uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock and like the Blair Witch Project or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, these films that purport Mm -hmm. to some degree to be real. But we know they're not. But it also feels like this could have happened. This could have been a newspaper article I read and noticed and was like, oh, wow, that's weird. But then to actually delve into it and you kind of realize all these very personal tragedies that happen through the stuff we scan in our day-to-day life is mm-hmm. is um, we're, we're intaking so much information these days, especially these days, and to actually have these kind of like coin drop moments mm-hmm. are very unsettling. Cool. Uh, I love that you brought up um, the Blair Witch Project, and I want to come back to that. But first, I think let's talk a little bit about the permutations Mm. of this text. I want to talk some more about the book, but I feel like it's worth mentioning that there is a 2018 TV adaptation. It's a six-part miniseries starring Natalie Dormer as Miss Sabliard. Samra Weaving's in it. That's cool. I'm a fan. I like her. Uh, the showrunner was a woman, and I haven't seen the TV adaptation. I didn't I didn't see it in advance of the episode, kind of deliberately. I didn't want it to raise different questions and muddy the waters, so to speak. But I am interested enough in the story that I have every intention of doing so, especially a six-part miniseries. No problem. But the showrunner chose to to emphasize the elements of girlhood and tell the story from their point of view, the fierce bonds between friends, uh, you know, kind of almost like what happened at Hanging Rock was an aspect of escape and empowerment, which I think is kind of interesting-ish. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really narrow slice of the puzzle for all the threads that I was able to tease out of it. Uh, you know, it really emphasized the restrictiveness of Victorian whiteness. And according to an article I read from The Atlantic, by fleshing out the characters, it shifts the dynamics of the disappearance, implying that they were somehow liberated by it. Uh, and I do think that's an interesting take, but that is not at all how I would have gone had I remade this. Oh, what would you have done? Uh, well, let's talk. Okay. So, the book. Yes. The book, as I mentioned, was published in 1967. 
And I've been currently reading it. I didn't get to finish it in time for this episode. I think I'm a bit more than halfway through. And the film is a very faithful adaptation Mm -hmm. of the book. Obviously, it goes into various kind of thoughts and inner workings of multiple characters, especially Mrs. Appleyard. um, Which, cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. So as you mentioned, the fact versus fiction is kind of, uh, the author was really cagey about it prior to her death. I think, you know, some people took it to be, yes, this really happened. But if you look, apparently February 14th, 1900 didn't fall on a weekend. And so that's kind of evidence. But again, as per the author's foreword, as you mentioned before, it hardly seems important. It doesn't matter. What does matter, uh, it's part of the story. I don't think it matters is the excised final chapter. Chapter 18, baby. So this movie ends without any resolution. And the book also ended without any resolution, except for a final chapter that emerged posthumously. Uh, Supposedly, the final chapter was cut at the publisher's suggestion, and it's right at the end. So Mm. it's like you've read all this, all the characters, all the fallout, all the legacy of the event, and then all of a sudden we flash back to what happened. However, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for rationale, if you're looking for like the follow-up to Unsolved Mysteries that ties everything up in the neat bow... You're not going to find it in this final chapter. And that final chapter is online as a PDF. We will link it in the show notes because if you're super keen and really want to know what happens in the author's mind to these characters, it's, I don't want to say interesting. In some ways, it's interesting. In other ways, I was kind of, I read it and I was like, nah, I like my take. So the final chapter, it describes the girls having their sudden onset of dizziness in their expedition, and they see a woman in her underwear yelling and fainting, which we can assume is Miss McCraw, mm-hmm. but apparently they don't seem to recognize her or identify her as such. And not only do they take off their stockings, but also their corsets, which they throw off the cliff face where they linger ghost-like and cast no shadow. There was talk about Irma being separated from the group due to a balanced boulder shifting over and sealing them off, a hole in space, a time warp, a tear in the time warp continuum, transformation into animals, and this and this and that. And I'm eager to hear what you think, but my read... And, you know, maybe I'm I'm sure I'm projecting on this. Mm-hmm. I don't know this author, but I have to think that she was fucking around a little bit. <laughs> I have to think that, especially in line with her foreword, where she's like, look, it doesn't matter what happened to them. I think that that basically this final chapter is outlandish, is purposefully outlandish to the point of inconsequence. And it's supposed you're supposed to read it and be like, what the fuck? I still don't know what happened. And that is the entire point. Um, well, from what I read is some of the, especially the transformation into animals was part of Aboriginal belief. Okay. So it was a way of bringing in an Aboriginal viewpoint into a very white story. Uh And that's kind of interesting to me, even though I wouldn't have necessarily gleaned that unless I had the writing to point that out to me. Okay. I was just kind of like, oh, okay. Now there's the wormhole and have the animals and, oh, a crab. Okay. And so unless I had that, you know, extra text to kind of explain it to me, Uh um, my read of the the film, and I I waited a little while before I broached chapter 18, um, I I very much feel that this is a film about the time and the land itself. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this. We did an episode a couple years ago now, God, about uh, Wolf Creek and the loved ones, uh, an Australian kind of new wave horror. I remember The Hangover. (laughs) 
And um, we, we talked a little bit about how I think Canada feels, as we are Canadian, feels a lot of kinship with Australia as we were a British colony. Uh-huh. Australia was a penal colony. And, you know, we have had to kind of fight for uh, what we're now reckoning with, which is a settler mentality of creating content for ourselves yeah. to, uh, you know, push back into the echo chamber our own founding myths of what Australia is about, what Canada is about, yeah. all of these different things. What is our culture? What is our What art? is our culture? And we dive quite a bit into that in that episode. But to me, this whole film was about this very Victorian, British, deeply British girls' college set in the middle of this wild, untamed outback, so mm-hmm. to speak. And to me, I always just felt these girls were kind of reabsorbed into the land. Um, you know, they felt a pull towards it. They felt some kind of kinship with it. And they wanted to be part of it or the land wanted to take them something. And I kind of like that I don't know what that is. And, um, you know, certainly in Canada, we have been dealing in large part with reconciliation with our indigenous communities across the country and reconciliation, you know, as per the Canadian government, it is one of their mandates over the last, you know, 10 or so years uh, is to honor treaties. Yeah. That were brokered with various, you know, indigenous communities across the country to allow for sovereignty uh, and to heal and repair and allow people to move forward in the best ways possible. Um, my sense is there is a very similar conversation going on in Australia and New Zealand um, with those communities as well and the Aboriginal communities. And there's a lot of fucking tension. And I'm sure, as you know, you can imagine, if you're not familiar with these conversations. Um, we're not doing great at it. Uh-uh. We're really not. There's so many indigenous communities in Canada who do not have clean drinking water. Like that's a base. And then on top of that, violence, missing and murdered indigenous women, uh-huh. all of those things. So I found this article um, and it was on the Australian Government Center for Policy Development oh my. by Lindy Edwards. And it, she talks about the internal debate within Australia, uh, the Australian identity and that in contrast with the fact that it is based on the stolen land from the aboriginals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the founding myth, it, it's kind of like an organizing principle or narrative that we got sent here as a penal colony, and this is how we pulled our bootstraps up and made a country, and now we're Australian, and good day. And that's cool. And that's really problematic, as Edwards points out in this piece, which we will link in the show notes, because it deals with that founding myth is equality for white men, mm-hmm. for these, you know, convicts who were sent to Australia. It has nothing to do with other people who were sent there, other communities, the Aboriginal community among them. And they're having to reckon with this. It was all about the white man kind of going there and conquering this vast land. And for many people, the Australian myth had to do with, yes, there is a British heritage there, but it doesn't come with all the history and all the class structure necessarily. It's something new and something different, but they were still punishing many communities in order to maintain control of the land. Um, So I think Picnic at Hanging Rock is actually a really, really interesting, in-depth thoughtful meditation from a very white perspective, and I, and I think very purposely from a white perspective of showing these girls, this community that is subsumed by this land that they thought they could control through uh, British patriarchy. Mm-hmm. That was their ultimate undoing, and it becomes their undoing in multiple ways that starts with these girls going missing. That's right. I think it's really interesting how, as white 
as these characters are, there are still uh, the gradients of class and stature within that that has to do with Australian history, uh, particularly with regard to Albert and Michael. Um, Michael is aristocratic, whereas Albert is white. He has a lot of privilege, but he's kind of this working class white. He's crude, and he doesn't have the same compulsions that Albert has. He doesn't have that same colonizer mentality. Um, you know, he still has white privilege. He's still mm -hmm. a man. Uh, but I think their friendship really illustrates that they're not on equal footing. And the book goes a little bit further into that about how Albert is kind of able to acquire uh, a certain level of footing. But well, and of course, the heartbreak with Bertie, as he's also called uh, in the film, and book uh, is that his sister is Sarah. Oh my God! And I was and shook. like we the audience know that. Yeah. We we the audience know that these two characters who are following throughout the film are connected, but we never watch them meet, and it is so and they never will heartbreaking. That's right. She wasn't even lost on the rock, but she may as well have been because yeah. she is lost to him forever. And uh, I also found that obviously Sarah being an orphan. Even though being white and Australian and being admitted to this school, that uh, boundary is still heavily policed by the girls. It's policed most strongly by Mrs. Appleyard. Uh, so I like how all those shades of gray are within this school. Now, I also had an inkling that these animal transformations and all the animal symbology likely has to do with native Australian Aboriginal mythology. And so I started to take a look in there, but holy wow, that's like a whole other world. And it's not that it's it's impermeable. It's just, I always think back to this example that was given to me when I was in elementary school. We did uh, a unit or whatever on uh, on the Inuit. It was, mm. We said Inuit at that time. And I specifically remember the teacher explaining how the Inuit had, you know, eight different words for snow uh, to refer to all the different kinds of snow. The more wet snow, the more dry snow, the snow that was useful for this or that, snow that you could walk on, snow that you couldn't walk on, whatever. And what I found in my inquiry into Australian Aboriginal culture is that English just doesn't have adequate terms to really describe it. Um, so in looking at the symbology of wildlife, like, I have certain biases. Like, when I, I interpret a snake as a Judeo-Christian uh, symbol of evil, uh, I remember when I saw the ants crawling all over the girl's sleeping feet. Mm. I tend to associate insects like that with rot and decay. So when I saw that, I didn't think that they were returning to nature. I kind of saw it as a portend of doom. I think that's such an interesting moment in the film because you've got all these girls kind of falling asleep. And even before they do, before, um, you know, Miranda and the others kind of go for their um, last scene walk, you know, one of them says something to the effect of, we're the only living things for miles around. And then it cuts to all of these like insects and things moving around that are living. And I think it speaks to the notion of human exceptionalism, yeah. that we are the only ones here. And then I feel like the land was like, excuse me? Yeah. Excuse me? Not okay. only am I here, but you weren't even the first ones to come here no. in the 80s. And we have a wormhole. Suck it. <laughs> Anyway, what I was able to find and what I was able to start to bend my head around, and it was all really interesting and I have to come back to it, uh, is that Australian Aboriginal belief systems are built on reverence for the land, which isn't at all surprising given that these are hunter-gatherer societies that live off the land. Uh, you know, they know better than to do it the colonial way, which is to mine it for everything it's worth and uh, and strip it bare and then hoard it and then capitalize on it and all of that stuff. But Australian origin stories also have a lot to do with something called the dream time hmm. or the dreaming. 
And the dreaming is basically an all-encompassing worldview that permeates their entire belief system. It infects origin stories about the creation of the universe and just how they understand uh, morality, right and wrong, and how to live their lives. They don't think of one's individual ancestry as a chain the way we do. In the dreaming, someone's ancestry, someone's ancestral past is a singular consciousness of knowledge and wisdom that they refer to as the dreaming. And the wisdom from the dreaming is what goes into the rules. So, like, there are sort of gods and spirit beings that are associated with different parts of the landscape. There's totems and stuff like that, and it's all very complicated. And the bulk of the literature I could find was we found one Aboriginal person who was able to tell us their interpretation of it. Nobody seems to have a really concrete, overall, encompassing understanding. But I thought it was really interesting to hear so much dream and dream and dreamlike and dream. Mm -hmm. Because Miranda, as you know, mm -hmm. a dream within a dream within a dream. And what I kind of gleaned from what I was able to read was that, you know, these dreams are consciousness. And consciousness is something that's ethereal that can kind of stick to places. And so in my view, while I wasn't able to really suss out this animal represents this and this animal represents that, bearing in mind that this is the worldview of the aboriginals, we don't see at all in this film. I clocked one in the search party. Did you catch that? Yes. In the search party, there was one black aboriginal who presumably they were using as a tracker, but that's about it. And I think it's strange because in some ways, I feel like the whiteness of this film is such a comment on itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in, in some ways, intentionally so. My only concern with it is for, you know, some people who maybe aren't thinking about it in that way, it might be lost on them. Totally. And I'm sure it Fair was enough. for decades. Like, this film was way ahead of its time. We're only talking about whiteness in a mainstream critical way now due to certain events that have kind of forced us to really reckon with it. But yeah, this is a problem that's old as time, apparently. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's really kind of been my whole read of this film, is uh -huh. it's through its whiteness, it is about the land and the landscape kind of enforcing its own way of being. That's right. Um, obviously, we have a kind of colonial uh, sentiment at Appleyard College. And I, I think that, you know, goes into another really interesting thing that this film is so obsessed with, mm. which I love, which is time. Mm -hmm. The watch is stopping. The watch is stopping. The mentioning of dates, the constant, like, metronomic ticking in um, Mrs. Appleyard's office. Oh, yeah. Tick, 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 tick. Um, you know, the sense of missing money and money not coming in. It's been six months since they paid. All of these things kind of uh, feel like a very Western North American capitalist thing mm -hmm. that once you get outside of that structure, nothing really gives a shit about it. It's all our own construct of time, of being, of value. And I think that's very powerful, in some ways kind of scary because, you know, I've certainly grown up in this culture where time is money and all of this and this and that, um, and we're so obsessed with it. And this film just starts to kind of peel away all of the different layers of fiction that we've created around yeah, it. Yeah, it's very fundamental. So as I see this film as a, a really interesting and thoughtful deconstruction of time and time in the way that we know it and time in the way we expect it, it also can't help but affect the narrative journey of this film, the narrative journey of this text. And, you know, I think by 
denying our expectations, the way this film kind of sets up, this happens on this date, and then we've got timestamps. I had a constant feeling of time within this film, as I was just mentioning, but also the uh, journey of the investigation, how much time it was taking. And then when you get to the end, no one learned shit. And it's like, Mrs. Appleyard killed herself on like March 27th. Wow, that was like a month and a half. A month and a half. And I think that this film, in a way, it doesn't show us what happens in this kind of critical moment in the narrative. It denies us this knowledge of what happened to these girls Mm -hmm. um, and this woman with Miss McCraw. But it also keeps this kind of openness and it does a really good job of showing and not telling, which I think is, I've mentioned many times in this podcast, is such a big, important part of film. And the less we know about the ins and outs, they're showcased to us all around. Mm -hmm. And it's a film that really demands our attention and our patience with it. Like, I I really clicked into it in the scene, and it's quite early on in in the film, when all the girls are out at the picnic and Sarah's held back and she has to learn the poem. Yeah. And, you know, Mrs. Appleyard comes in and is like, why haven't you learned this poem? And the girl's like, "Uh, I don't like it. And I wrote something of my own. Mm -hmm. And she's surrounded by these portraits of Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. And it's like this fucking shrine to British colonialism that they are within. And you see this suffocating nature that is so interesting to me in this film because it feels like it should collapse in a more fantastic way than it did in real life. But I think that this film kind of shows us all the fallacies of British colonialism, of the colonialist in general, and how it was always a mirage. Mm. It was always not real. It was just enforced Mm -hmm. and brutalized. And and, very oppressive. And very oppressive and punished people for it and creating this fear around it. And I think in many ways, this film denies our expectations of a narrative resolution, but in doing so, it kind of opened up all of these other possibilities. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those films that like what Stacey was saying about in her note to me, is someone was like, I watched it and I really didn't like it. I could almost understand, mm-hmm. but I feel like I want people just to, hopefully you've all watched it and you've just kind of said, Huh, an interesting, strange journey. I wonder why I feel so strange about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it leads us down these, you know, kind of breadcrumb paths. It's not about where the girls went missing. It's it's about what happens when people of their stature go missing. That's right. The disappearance triggered other ills happening in the school, and it unleashes a whole lot of pent-up frustration and rage, and everything collapses due to this disappearance. And I really felt like it was like watching an urban legend unfold, mm-hmm. like you were saying before. It's a beautiful mystery. It's almost too picturesque to be real. These immaculate Victorian girls in white against the lush countryside. And there are parts that are intriguing but don't really make sense. And there are holes in the story, but that's what makes it feel like a story that's been embellished and elaborated upon through word of mouth over years and years and years. Have you ever heard of legend tripping? I have not. But you have. You just didn't know it was called that. Legend tripping is what folklorists and anthropologists call it when teenagers take a site that is believed to be the scene of something uh, horrific and tragic and dare one another to go there as a rite of passage. So uh, the Blair Witch Project, yeah, they were making a documentary, but it was also this place is haunted as fuck and we're going to check it out and we're going to take you with us. When you see a horror movie where all the neighborhood kids are daring each other to go take something from that old house that's haunted or a graveyard or whatever, I didn't have any sites like that in my neighborhood growing up. Did you? No. No, but I I grew up in the city, so. Right. Like, I think maybe this is more commonplace. But anyway, it's commonplace enough in narrative fiction. Oh, wait, no, I did go to the haunted cake mansion here in Toronto. 
Toronto. You know, like oh, the yeah. steakhouse. Oh, yes. I've been there with you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing yeah, happened. Yeah, and then there was like, I mean, people say that places are haunted for tourist purposes. There's a really spooky I mean, gallows in Ottawa. Fuck, we've been to Salem how many times now? Exactly, right. I, I've never encountered something that's like, I dare you to go up there. I, like, I, it's a challenge. It's a scary thing that you don't want to do, but you do it as a rite right. of passage. I feel like there's some aspect of that going on in this film, even though the girls don't think of the site as anything other than a fun tourist attraction. It is, in reality, an ancient and hallowed place for the indigenous Australian tribes. And the colonizers turned it into a tourist attraction, which is essentially desecration of that space. And that kind of makes that space haunted mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, like a pet cemetery. That's right. And there's an aspect of that rock's history at play that remains to this day, and I thought this was so interesting. Oh, my gosh. Are we going to have to go on a trip to Australia when we can travel again? Oh, yeah, we are now. Oh, sweet. You're going to want to by the end Fuck of Fuck yeah. So, obviously, Hanging Rock was always a place of interest geologically, but tourism has sprouted up in direct reference to the popularity of this book, especially on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day... <laughs> They show the fucking film at the Hanging Rock Reserve, and people are known to go up to the site and call Miranda, Miranda. That's a thing. That's a thing to do, apparently. Oh so back in 2017, there was a PhD student named uh, Amy Spears. In 2017, the novel turned 50 years old. And this PhD student was like, this is fucked up. She started a campaign to revamp the tourism associated with the novel. And she called her campaign Miranda Must Go. <laughs> and I will link to that in the show notes because it is really interesting. Basically, there are visiting centers all catered to the myth of the missing white schoolgirls rather than Australia's real history surrounding Hanging Rock Mm. and the significance to Indigenous culture. The character of Miranda had effectively whitewashed all that nasty history. And so this PhD student rightfully pointed out that people are so obsessed with the fiction of these missing white girls that they're missing the real tragedy of Aboriginal people. Like, even if you're going and supposedly getting a historical thing, you're being told Miranda... You're not being told the full truth. So her website is terrific. It pulls a lot of imagery from the movie. There's a hilarious one that's like the four missing girls in each other's arms holding signs that say abolish white vanishing (laughs) and whose absences matter. It's great. You have to check it out. I will. But it goes to something called missing white women syndrome. And this Ooh. is something that sociology has taken note of. It happens well, here. Girl? For sure. It happens here. It happens in the U.S. as well. It happens in the white world. That When white women from middle class backgrounds go missing, we call in the National Guard. It is all over the news. And when women of color go missing, it's ignored. Mainstream media doesn't cover it, and less effort is put toward finding these women. And there's a number of different reasons contributing to that, and they're all tied to white supremacy. I don't need to go into those here. But Australia apparently has its own level of this syndrome, its own unique level due to the nature of the colonization that we were just talking about. And it's a concept Elspeth Tilly writes about in a piece called The Uses of Fear, Spatial Politics in the Australian White Vanishing Trope. I will link to that in JSTOR. And 
she notes several literary examples of white kids out in nature when nature suddenly turns on them and they get lost. And it's not just that they get turned around or they mm. lose their bearings. She gives examples of the way these sites are described. It's like nature turned on them. Like the nature, the environment itself is described as hostile and irrational and uncanny and as if it changed on them. Like mm. they're somehow victims of the environment rather than people who simply got lost. And when she talks about the picnic and Hanging Rock in particular, she notes how the novel opens up to this very domesticated, sanitized, super white, super white environment before traversing the boundary into the wild, this rock formation that's beyond the human capacity to perceive. Again, I haven't read the book, but apparently the author goes on and on about how it's so big, it's so grand, it's so old, it's so new, it's so, it's so. But it's all the more so when we're talking about the wilderness swallowing up the most vulnerable members of the oppressor. So she provided a couple of uh, notable examples in pop culture, and I thought these were so funny. So one of them is the Duff children. <laughs> and these are three kids who got lost in northwestern Victoria in 1864. They were lost for nine days, and dozens of white men on horseback could not find them. A couple of indigenous trackers did. And the whole incident supposedly improved relations between the settlers and the aboriginals. But history remembers it as, like, one of the kids who was lost became super famous and appeared in all manner of colonial art in the early 1900s. Jane Duff, who was seven years old, was minted the Duff heroine, and they erected a memorial stone for her when she died. And it was all for her. She got lost. She's the one who got lost. There's so much out there about Jane Duff getting lost, but nothing about the brave people who found her or, like, the story that came out of that. And the other example I thought was funny was uh, Azaria Chamberlain was an infant who died in 1980 and is so respectfully recalled every time someone says, a dingo ate my baby. <laughs> right. You've heard that shit. Yes. Basically, Azaria's mom, Lindy, claimed that a dingo got into their tent and stole the child but the mom was tried for murder and sentenced to life in prison. She served three years until they found a piece of Azaria's clothing near a bunch of dingo layers, and they fucking released her and gave her 1.3 million bucks to be quiet about it. Big, big news. There are so many examples of white people going missing in Australia and Australia freaking out and then canonizing the people who went missing. It's really Interesting. Well, I mean, I will say this as a white person. We love to be the victim. Hell to the fuck yeah. And we really need to stop that. My fellow whites, let's stop this. Let's just simmer it's that down. It's not to say that we aren't oppressed. It's not to say that we don't have our own battles to fight, but fuck. Yeah. Like, a little perspective here, my friends. Because um, that's fascinating. And a lot of that I knew parts of and not all of. So thank you for bringing that all to light. And I wanted to talk about something that I think is very, in some ways, prevalent within the film. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily overtly spoken, but I did want to bring it up because it's very popular in horror, and that is virginity. Oh, that. You mean being intact? Yes. Now, when they find Irma and the police guy and the doctor are just kind of like talking about how she was found and she's sleeping under this like mosquito net and looking very serene and beautiful and they're talking about like, oh, her feet weren't hurt and it's all very odd and very strange. Mm -hmm. And then the doctor goes, and she was intact. Thank God. Otherwise, they'd have to just throw her in the trash. Oh, like, what, you burn her in a fire like a witch. Right. I um, love how they didn't notice the corset. 
I had such a laugh about that. I remember seeing a CSI episode back in the day where it was like, all oh, these men were searching and then like the clue that cracked the case lied in how long it took for nail polish to dry. Yes. And only a woman would know. Well, only a maid would know in this case. Um, when I when I first watch a film for the podcast, I just kind of take some long form notes of just themes or, or ideas or things that are set in it that I want to come back to. Uh-huh. And so one of the notes I have here from my first watch of it was Virgin, Virgin Sacrifice, Importance of Virgins, Arrow, Virgins and Horror, <laughs> Colonialism. Virgin, Virgin, Virgin. Virgin, Virgin, Virgin. Virgin. <laughs> virgin. It's like I'm in fucking Scream right now. <laughs> However, this theme came back um, as I was watching, as I am wont to do, when I have a beautiful Criterion Blu-ray in front of me, as many extras as I possibly can. Uh, there are some great extras on the Criterion Blu-ray, uh, should you want to pick it up. Nice big booklet. Nice big booklet, too. Highly recommend it. Now, there's an intro by a film scholar by the name of David Thompson. He's an older white guy, you know, no tea, no shade, and... He's talking about these various things. He brings up some really interesting points of a kind of overarching narrative and some of the themes and blah, blah, blah. And then he says something to the effect of, you know, and then we're watching these virgins go up the mountain. And I was like, wait, he says it breathlessly like that? That's how I heard it. Anyone who starts to talk about Australian film, Picnic is going to come up very quickly because it's a memorable film. The image of those young virgins in white walking towards this immense, brutal rock. Um, so wrong. It's so pedophiliac and icky and we could do a whole episode on virginity, yo. Well, yeah. And I mean, virgins in horror are a thing. Mm-hmm. They have been a thing all the way back, all the way back. But even to, you know, where it's really codified in slasher films, the notion of the final girl and virginity is seemingly sacrosanct mm-hmm. within the horror genre. Purity equals life, whereas non-purity equals death. Yep. They're very rote, lame terms that I'm increasingly pleased to see are being challenged across the board, uh, especially in neo-slashers, new wave slashers, whatever you want to call them. And it got me thinking about how virginity is coded within this film. Obviously, these are young-ish teen girls. It's the turn of the century Victoriana. Um, I doubt there was a ton of banging going on except for the help. Um, yeah, who bang? Get it, Jackie well, Weaver. The banging's good. But these girls, like, there's nothing necessarily sexualized about them, which I find kind of interesting. Even in the opening scenes when they're pulling their corsets, it doesn't feel to me, or it didn't feel to me personally. Maybe you all listening felt different, or you, Andrea, felt different. It was just like this is something we do. We get ready in the mornings, we pull our corsets, and we go on with our lives. I felt like there was a bit of... Um, I mean, there's a bit of voyeurism. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That I think, you know, insofar as it, we're not especially scandalized to see that kind of thing, Victorian dudes of the air would be like, oh, I can see your bloomers. Well, even when um, uh, Michael and Bertie see them, uh, the girls kind of jumping over the creek, and uh, Bertie says something like, bet that one has nice legs. That her legs go all the way to her bum. Yeah. And I'm here like, to tell you folks that everyone's legs goes all the way up to their bums. <laughs> it's an anatomical certainty. But I thought it was really interesting because they're obviously very coded and, you know, wearing white clothes and they're pure and they're seemingly very innocent in many ways. And 
I think this film does a really good job to code them as virgins in terms of, you know, all of those long shots of them in their white clothes and it's gauzy and it's hazy and they're kind of climbing up the rocks at the beginning mm-hmm. and they're all very like, whoo, what's going on? Let's just keep going. It's so sleepy. And so the film codes them with their white dresses and purity, even though they're taking off their stockings and their corsets and all of those things until they finally go off to where we don't see them anymore. And this got me thinking a lot about the notion in various cultures, the notion of virgin sacrifice, which has also been something that has been kind of colonized as this notion of savagery or or something kind of equating with a culture that is not as... um, quote-unquote progressive. Pagan, right? Pagan, yeah. Essentially, you would sacrifice a virgin because of their purity, and you would sacrifice them for a reason. What I find interesting about Picnic at Hanging Rock is, in my reading, what I kind of take away from it is these virgins were sacrificed, but not for a reason that white colonials understood. And there is a kind of threat in this that we have lost these valuable women. In the book, it actually kind of goes more in depth about Mrs. Appleyard saying, well, Miranda was so wealthy and, and her family was of such good stature. So such losing potential such potential as a commodity. These commodified young women were lost but for no reason. They were not held up for a better life in this way or a better community in this way. They were simply lost and they had such potential. And what they mean by potential in the age that the film is taking place in is marriageability, Uh uh, money, family status, things like that. The most oppressive elements in my mind to white women, Uh um, white, straight, cis women. It's really scary and kind of problematic, but I think this film really dances around it in a well-thought-out way without ever directly calling it out. Uh Because I think, especially, you know, 1967 to 1975, we weren't necessarily talking about that. We were in the grips of a kind of second-wave feminism, but the loss of their potential was Uh seen as, like, whatever. It was seen as, like terrifying and strange and wrong and it's like fuck it they turn into like crabs and other shit and they're living their best lives well and it's not like their disappearance was for nothing because it brought down mrs appleyard who was a fucking monster and i think a murderer Ooh, do you not think so who do you think she murdered when i saw sarah's dead body i was convinced that Appleyard murdered her. And I was actually astonished to read that, oh, apparent suicide. And I was like, what? The fact that Mrs. Appleyard continuously lied about someone coming to pick her up, and then in the book, from what I read, was that in the book, Sarah's benefactor actually did write back and send some money. Because it wasn't about money. It was never about money. It was what Sarah represented. Yeah. Is Sarah was the wild one that couldn't be tamed, and Mrs. Appleyard's desperate bid for control just grated against and yeah, her. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if I believe that, you know, Mrs. Appleyard threw her off the building, but her actions absolutely led to her death. And it's interesting to me that the one who was kind of found a couple days later, a little bit afterwards, Irma. Can we talk mm, about that scene? Let's talk about Irma. Let's talk about the fucking scene because she was found and she didn't have too much bruising or anything or cuts on her hands and, Intact. and feet. The hymen. It was there. Thank God. But the mademoiselle, the French teacher, brings her back and, you know, kind of says, you may have 10 minutes, again, this obsession with time, Mm -hmm. to speak as you wish to her. And Irma is, like, done fucking up in this, like, crazy Victorian 
red hatted. It's red. It is scarlet. It is red as fuck. Vibrant. Mm-hmm. And this whole film has been like very neutral white palettes. It looks like an IKEA catalog mm-hmm. in some ways. And then you've got this striking figure in red. Mm-hmm. That and her hair is done her. up. Like she, it, it, she's become a woman. She might have come back intact, but she has been through some shit. Yeah. Then the girls attacking her. Yeah. Saying, "Why won't you tell us? Tell us what happened? What happened?" Yeah. And I thought, again, you're in this kind of disparate place of yes, we're in this colonized version of Australia right now, but now we have this community of young, young women who want to know what happened to the people that have gone missing and the one who's kind of come back and is seemingly on her way up in society and is just, you know, doing her victory lap of like, see you laters. She doesn't have any answers for them. And they're so angry at her. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually exert this very real and scary power that the two teachers that are in the room don't really know how to handle. And then it cuts to, you know, the final moments of that scene that Sarah's been tied up to help with her slump. Whoops. This whole time, physical torture has been going on while girls are dancing, uh, admittedly listlessly and joylessly. And I think, again, that speaks to the pall that the disappearance cast over the school. And I think that's why they got so mad. Mm-hmm. It's like you wrecked everything, and what do you have to show for it? Not even any information, and you walk in here looking all good? No. Yeah. They had something, and now the disappearances, everything else has kind of cracked the veneer of it. Uh-huh. It's all fallen apart so quickly and so easily, and it shows the fallacy, again, as we were talking about, of colonialism, of white privilege, of white supremacy, and it's you know, kind of a shocking moment to watch and in a rather quiet, subdued film. This moment of violence is very upsetting. Especially among these little girls who are just so ba 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 I think it's worth mentioning that in the book, Irma has a bit more of a storyline with regard to her relationship with Michael. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Michael, as I mentioned before, he is this white colonial figure. Uh, he sees Hanging Rock differently than Birdie, he sees it as something to be conquered, and this is a problem to be solved, and there's missing women up there, and here I come to save the day. And so he does. And he finds Irma, and from what I understand, again, I haven't read the book, I've just read these summaries, but they have this ongoing correspondence. They become quite close friends mm-hmm. to the point where Irma expects things to go further, but Michael is obsessed with Miranda. Mm. So Miranda caught Michael's eye as they were crossing the stream, and we hear again and again that she has this ethereal beauty, this unknowable beauty that makes her disappearance all the more uh, obsession-inducing. And I read something in the online Criterion article on the film that really really stuck with me about how Miranda is described as so mesmerizing and mysterious even before she disappeared. And we project our expectations mm-hmm. onto her. We project that she is the protagonist and that she is going to uh, lead us through this story. And when it doesn't happen, the film itself becomes our Miranda. It becomes this unknowable, enigmatic itch that we can't scratch. And I feel like the book kind of goes further with that and its impact on Michael in that, you know, he can have 
Irma, who is beautiful and rich and looking for a suitor. And you rescued her. She loves you. She's right here for you. But he still can't kind of shake Miranda. He still can't scratch that itch. Mm-hmm. So I think as we've talked about this film, and there's so much to talk about, and there are so many different interpretations and different ways into it, and I'm sure you all have your own when you've seen it. And I think that's speaks to the greatness of this film. Um, For me, Picnic at Hanging Rocks depicts an unseen journey when women escape a male gaze, and it really tracks the anxiety around that loss of their quote-unquote value. Mm. And there's just so much going on in this film, but that's how I've kind of distilled it for myself. Yeah, same. And then in my research on Australia and the obsession around this film and about how it kind of co-opted this tourist attraction of Hanging Rock, like women's value, sometimes they're more valuable lost than found. Mm. Sometimes they're more valuable uh, unrequited. And I think that's so icky and fucked up, and that's a very white thing that we need to talk about. Yeah, and and I think this film is really singular because of the way it talks about these things. In some ways, it feels so overt. In some ways, it feels like the film is just screaming it at you without yeah. ever saying it. But again, I feel like so many people could watch it and not walk away with any of that. Totally. And and like there's a very famous um, story of, of a distribution screening in America as the film was coming out and some guy threw his coffee cup at the screen because he threw said, his coffee because he said he, he wasted his time with this film because he didn't know what happened to these girls. Yeah, we don't know what happened to these girls, but there is so much other shit the film is bringing up. It's so foreshadowing of what fucking cinema would become. Yeah. You know, I watched a movie recently that made me want to throw a coffee at a screen, which we are going to talk about <laughs> later tonight in a patrons only episode. But yes, but I think this film is it's kind of one of those things that Stacy mentioned, as we both talked about, is you're going to get out of it what you put in. Mm-hmm. Are you going to become a cool crab lady traveling interdimensionally? Or are you going to be Mrs. Appleyard killing herself or dying at the foot of Hanging Rock? <sighs> so many different people to be. I vote for crab. <laughs> crab for president. Crab Appleyard. <laughs> Well, that's our Picnic at Hanging Rock episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed diving into this film. Mm-hmm. It was not on my radar, and I'm so grateful to Stacy and Kay and Anthony for putting this film on our radar. Thank you for, I mean, not only the support of taking advantage of the Dean tier, but... This film has changed me, and I, like I said, I feel like, I feel like it's opened up a whole new different perspective of uh, literary references and themes that I'm going to pick up on forevermore. It's a challenging film. Again, we mentioned this, I think, in our Cloverfield, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane episode when we referenced uh, the Gay Lords of Darkness interview with Luca Guadagnino and David Kajenic. So good. So good. You guys have to listen to that. But uh, David Kajenic was saying something like, there's rigorous horror and there's lazy horror. And I think Picnic at Hanging Rock, like Suspiria 2018, is rigorous horror. Picnic at Hanging Rock is only horror if you apply some rigor to it. Oh, how about that? Yes, fucking please. We need to <laughs> announce our next episode. We need to announce our next episode. I'm excited. It's December. 
2020 has ended. Thank fuck. And uh, we've been holding on to uh, tackling this film for a little while. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We needed to w- wait for the right... I mean, I think winter is a time for fairy tales. And closeness and conversations about family. And maybe there's some political unrest that applies. I don't know. Oh, we love a bit of political unrest. So your December homework is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. That's going to be a fun one. That's a fun one to rewatch. I'm excited. That's easy homework. I, oh, yeah. I, I would uh, rewatch that anyway. What the hell? So, yeah, that is uh, December Pan's Labyrinth. Make sure you check that out. Again, big thank you to Stacey, Anthony, Kay, and David Kajenic for yeah. the Blu-ray. What a wonderful little horror community of broken telephone this episode is. I, <laughs> I feel the it. same way about it. It's great. Uh, quick reminder, uh, our merch drive class of 2020 merch. You guys asked for it. It's up now for a limited time. It's always up for a limited time. And um, we're telling you now, we told you last episode, I will not field any emails complaining that you guys didn't know. It's up now. Uh, Scoop it up. The artwork is awesome. Yeah, by uh, Mariel Ashlyn Kelly, and it's super cool. She's a local Toronto artist, and we love her. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, pick up your merch, watch horror, fuck colonialism, damn the patriarchy. Office hours are closed. <laughs>